Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And this was absolutely an incredible conversation with somebody that understands workplace well-being, cognitive function, and high performance like none other, Mr. James Hewitt. This was just a wonderful conversation. If you're in the workplace, if you're a leader of a company, if you're an endurance athlete and want to understand how to be cognitive at a higher level, then this is an episode that you want to listen to. Um, just, I loved how much of the endurance sport mentality of how to design a training plan for the physiological performance. We can actually use a lot of that to build a cognitive plan and how we perform in the workplace and how we can be more present and how we can get more out of ourselves um, in, in our in our work. Just an absolutely fantastic episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. All right. Today's guest is a world leader in the field of human performance, well-being, and cognitive function. He spent over a decade equipping individuals and organizations ranging from professional cyclists to Fortune 500 companies to Formula One teams with science-based tools to just improve well-being, achieve sustainable high performance. He's given over a thousand hours of presentations and workshops to over 30 countries, making his mark in venues as prestigious as the World Economic Forum in Davos. One of the masterminds behind understanding how to look at cognitive performance as an endurance activity. We've both worked with the team at Hintzra Performance in the past, and it's just great to be able to reconnect again. So it's an absolute honor and privilege to have him join me. So welcome to the show, James Hewitt. How are you, mate? Well, thank you, Greg. That was a fantastic introduction and <laughs> I'm doing great. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Of course. Where are you in the world? Where are we calling from? So I'm based in Cambridge in the UK now. Mm. Um, I've been here for pretty much exactly two years um, and uh, until fairly recently, before then, we were living in the French Alps and uh, I was working mainly out of Switzerland and uh, we decided to move from one of the most beautiful and mountainous parts of the world to uh, one of the flattest parts of the United Kingdom uh, yeah. for some reason. But it's a great it's a great place to be and the average speed of my uh, training rides has increased significantly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess when you're going from some of the most beautiful bike riding in the world, I mean, it's nice to go home though, right? I mean, being in the UK is not yeah. all bad, is it? No, and, and my wife's family is from around here yeah. and so there's some great social connections and yeah, yeah. You know, we know that how important that is for well-being, and maybe we can talk about that. Um, yeah. So uh, it was yeah. a good move. Nice. And and we connected, as I said, um, a number of years ago, probably almost five years ago now. Um, you were working with Hints Performance, the group out of Finland that were working with a lot of the Formula One teams and uh, Fortune 500 companies with well-being. Um, you know, it's been it's been a while since we've connected. Now you've been, from what I understand, you've gone and are you doing your PhD or have you finished your PhD? Yeah, I'm, I'm desperately trying to finish the thing. So you <laughs> <laughs> can skip probably, most people say, you know, that it skip right to the end of the interview. It's like, um, so what are you looking forward to? It's like finishing this PhD. <laughs> um, so, you know, I've been, I've been doing it uh, now. This is the end of the sixth year, the end of the sixth year. I've been doing it part time. Wow. And some people say, oh, how, how's it going? And I'm like, well, you know, it's been, it's been pretty good, you know, except for an international house move two redundancies, global pandemic. Um, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been okay. Oh, <laughs> and, uh, I'm sorry um, to start the show I'm with that. And, you know, I've got these, these five, uh, um, five studies, um, uh, you know, that, it, that kind of form the foundation of it. All the analysis is done, kind of all the writing of those papers. I'm basically putting the wrapper around it and mm. working with my supervisors to get that thesis nice. uh, kind of wrapped up and signed off. 
yeah. but yeah but the, the phd focuses specifically on this idea of being always on in knowledge work so work where we think for a living mm. and the challenges that we sometimes have with switching off and what that does to our well-being and performance mm. with some ideas for how we can overcome that so very much aligned with the work that i've been doing professionally for, for several years now mm. and um it's been it's been you know the process of understanding that world better um gathering some unique data to try and understand what's holding people back and what can also support them has been fantastic um mm. you know the uh, the the academic constraints and challenges are always going to be there but actually overall it's been good and i'm really looking forward to, to getting it done uh, and continuing to do some academic research as well in the future because yeah, that's kind of how my brain is wired. Uh, yeah. I like to look at the world through that empirical lens, at least part of the time. Mm. Well, that's what this whole episode is about, you know, dissecting all of that work that you're doing. But before we do that, let's uh, rewind the clock. How did you sort of first find your passion for high performance and human performance at, at the optimum level? I've always been fascinated with human performance from when I was a kid. Um, you know, we spent some time living in the United States when I was very young, and um, during that time, it was the 80s and, you know, uh, people were still really interested in watching space shuttle launches. <laughs> and, you know, we went and visited NASA in, in Cape Canaveral and, uh, you know, in Houston, also in Florida, uh, you know, the, the NASA uh, centers there. Mm. And so, you know, I got to see the space shuttle and the Saturn V and, and I just got obsessed with space. And actually, as a kid, I actually wanted to be an astronaut. And for me, that represented, you know, peak performance for kind of, mm. you know, a three, four-year-old um, and going up to my teenage years, uh, you know, and and still now I'm fascinated with you know, with space travel and aviation actually and some of the limits of human performance that are explored there. Um, but as I was getting older, you know, I found that uh, I wasn't very good at game sports. You know, and and uh, we moved back to the UK. I obviously had to play football and rugby and cricket and that kind of thing. And you know, to say I was average is generous. Um, <laughs> I wasn't a big guy. Uh, you know, I was I was skinny. Um, I wasn't particularly well coordinated. I did really well academically, but you know the defining moment of my school sports career was when we were playing football. You know, which uh, our American friends call soccer, and uh, the PE teacher kind of gathered round the guys and said, "Look, in this next game, whatever you do, don't pass the ball to Hewitt." Oh, that was really? His, that was his mate. Brutal. And uh, and he took me aside and he's like, "Sorry, James, you know, but you know, this game's important." And uh, it, it wasn't, it was just like a friendly game in oh. a P lesson, physical education lesson at school. And he's like, you're good, you're good at, uh, in your lessons, he said, but you're never going to do anything in sport. So just don't bother. Oh. And he was, he was trying to give me some career advice or something, I think. But anyway, but that stuck with me. And the funny thing was, was that my response to that was who is this guy? I don't believe you. I must be good at something. And so um, I always kind of kept my eyes open for believing that maybe there was some latent athletic talent, even though there was, wasn't a lot of signal at that point. Yeah. Um, and I found that actually I started to gravitate towards endurance sports. Mm. And um, and for me, um, I had this kind of really strange uh, um, uh, kind of sporting opportunity thrust in front of me um, when I was actually uh, rollerblading around this indoor rink in the UK that happened to be one near my house. And this guy kind of came up to me and said, oh, you look like you're quite fast. Have you ever thought about inline speed skating? I was like, what on earth is that? 
And uh, it turns out that there's this incredibly niche sport called inline speed skating, where basically you use effectively, more effectively, ice speed skating boots, yeah. uh, kind of sim- very similar to long track speed skating boots, but without the clap, uh, you know, without the, the kind of the hinge mechanism. And these long frames with, uh, at the time it was five wheels, now you know, there's four or even three. And they race on these indoor tracks or and outdoor tracks, uh, you know, similar to cycling, but not as st- steeply banked. And then also on the road, they do road circuits. And so I joined this club and found I was okay at that sport and actually started representing Great Britain as a junior and started racing around Europe and won a few races and some national championships. And wow. you know, as I was a young teenager, I started to realize that I kind of had this, this endurance capacity. But the problem was, you know, um, speed skating in line or, you know, otherwise or ice is fundamentally quite a power-based sport. And again, I was a pretty skinny guy at this time. I was a teenager and I was, you know, 50 something kilos like wet through and um I, I realized that i just wasn't i wasn't generating the power and you know i'd go to european championships and stuff and like line up against these these belgians like with beards at the age of you know 14 and uh there was me this kind of like skinny <laughs> little english kid kind of just getting whooped and so um uh, I thought, you know, what, there must be something else that I can do with this endurance capacity because I could sit at a high level for long periods. I just couldn't generate these sprints and this power. And I'd be going to the gym day after day after day, uh, you know, trying to build muscle and power. And then this other guy, this uh, old guy, he kind of saw me every day working out in the local gym. And he's like, you know, I see you kind of working out here every day. You know, what sport do you do? And I said, oh, you know, I'm training for this sport in line speed skating. And he said, well, if you ever think about giving cycling a go, give me a call. And so gave me his number, um, uh, you know, landline at this point, there's not really <laughs> mo- many mobile phones around still. This is, you know, old school. Yeah. And, uh, and so, um, I decided to give him a call. I thought, you know, maybe I'll give cycling a go. Cyclists look pretty skinny, um, and, uh, and not massive like speed skaters. <laughs> so this guy, um, basically he used to be the national team track coach and, he introduced me to track cycling, road cycling. And, you know, a few months uh, after he got me on a bike, uh, entered the British national track championships. It's the first time I'd ever been on a velodrome, rode the individual pursuit points race, you know, scratch race, everything managed to finish top 10 in a couple of things. Um, and, uh, and realized that maybe I had something for that sport, but gravitated towards road cycling, and, um, and ended up, um, uh, uh, to cut a long story short, or a very long story slightly shorter, ended up moving to France uh, to race for a regional team. Uh, and then gradually worked my way through um, those uh, the ranks there, ended up riding for a professional development team uh, that at that time was linked with a, a team called Bouygues Telecom. And, um, and just discovered this passion for my human performance. Yeah. But the interesting thing that happened was, you know, the sport, Back then, we're talking, you know, early 2000s. It's quite a different landscape in many ways. And uh, um, there was an incident, uh, put it that way, mm-hmm. with one of my teammates. I was going to say, um, that was my next question. <laughs> embroiled in uh, the uh, what's called the Affair Cofidis, mm-hmm. some people may be familiar with. Uh, and, you know, a British cyclist, well-known British cyclist, got caught up in that. And unfortunately, he was involved our house ended up getting raided um, because there was a suspicion about him. Unfortunately, he was my housemate. Uh, we kind of wow. initially were guilty by association, got you kind of you know, trucked off to that local gendarmerie uh, to be interrogated. Wow. It was kind of at that point where you know, France had made doping a criminal offence. I'd kind of decided to stay on the, stay on the light side before then, yeah. but realizing that there was the potential that me at, at this point as a, you know, 62 kilogram 
cyclist with shaved legs might end up in prison and <laughs> decided that was not going to be a good place for me. And um, uh, at that point, um, you know, it was really, really clear that I wasn't going to be using any performance enhancing drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a consequence of that, really started to try and explore more intently how I could maximize my potential by exploiting legal methods, which for me was really orientated around trying to understand and apply sports science uh, measurement tools to answer a fundamental question. And that was what type of training, what type of nutrition, what type of lifestyle approaches are going to have the best effect for me to maximize my performance and started to map that progression uh, to try and conduct a series of experiments on myself. And that was really novel in the early 2000s in cycling, as many people on this call uh, will, will probably know. Mm. And what happened was people saw me progressing and people were quite surprised. You know, some people that there's this funny English guy, you know, doing all this weird stuff. And I was in a French team, you know, super traditional. And there was me. I was the only guy on the team with a power meter. And they just thought I was nuts. You know, I had a power tap wheel, you know, so they're all kind of turning up at training camp. And there was me with like, you know, my, my new bike, but my power tap wheel kind of trying to, kind of stick sensors on with tie wraps the night before the first training ride and all that kind of nonsense we used to have to do. It was hard, wasn't it? <laughs> it was hard. You, you, it you've was given tough. me flashbacks of all this stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, so hopefully hopefully, your audience is kind of, you know, yeah. coming on this journey with us yeah. into the past. Um, but anyway, the um, uh, people started to gather around me. People started to kind of say, you know, what's going on and how do you use this thing? And, you know, how are you combining this with heart rate? And so without realizing, it, I kind of fell into coaching and in the end recognized that, you know, I wasn't going to be a good pro cyclist. Uh, I just didn't have the capacity. And actually, you know, my VO2 max was pretty good. Again, I could sit a really high percentage um, of my of my maximum output for super long periods. Mm. But it was that power, it was those bursts again, which mm. I lacked. And unfortunately, you know, we know in road cycling, it's those bursts where you win the races, where you get in the break. Um, and, uh, and so I wasn't getting the results. And so I was pragmatic. I got to the final year under 23 and I said, I'm going to get back to university. I'll finish my degree in sports science, which is what I did. And then eventually um, ended up setting up my own coaching business. And it was a circuitous route to that, but um, uh, that was my focus in the end. And I was working mainly with amateurs. So I had a few clients who were professionals and elites, but mainly with road cyclists who had very demanding jobs in London, where I was based at the time, and also decided they wanted to ride very demanding cycling events. Mm. And at that point, I was introduced to this whole other aspect of human performance, this idea of cognitive performance. You know, these people were at the top of their game often, whether that was in the finance sector or the legal profession or consulting, for example, and realized that if I couldn't somehow integrate the load associated with what was going on in their working life, I couldn't plan their training effectively. Mm. This is kind of what really triggered that change of direction because, you know, I was working with one guy in particular, I remember, and I noticed that I could set him a training session. That, uh, there was a particular interval session and variations around that that I'd set him. And within a training block, some weeks where nothing else had changed in his training, he would tolerate it perfectly well. Other weeks... He just couldn't. And when I was talking to him, I realized that it was generally associated with him having a lot of load at work. And at this point, I wasn't even really thinking about sleep or HRV or anything like that. But I just recognized that it was the load associated with working life, that cognitive load mm -hmm. that I needed to somehow incorporate. 
And so I started to try to apply these tools and frameworks from sports science to try to model load in knowledge work and integrate the two so I could better plan cycling training. But in the end, it was uh, this curiosity, this interest in uh, in trying to understand working life overwhelmed what I was doing in cycling. Mm-hmm. And actually today and since then, the the focus of my work and research has been on that conceptualization of knowledge work as a cognitive endurance activity and actually focused on on the workplace and that link between well-being and performance um so so yeah i mean that's a a very long monologue uh in terms of describing how i ended up here but hopefully that gives people a bit of context uh, um, how does a, a skinny cyclist go from being a kind of speed skater to a very average road racer to working with uh, some uh, very interesting people and companies around the world. No, it's absolutely fascinating. And you, and you tell a story so well. It was very captivating. And I, I'm still stuck on the PE teacher. He's a bit of a dick, wasn't he? I mean, look, <laughs> in, in, in fairness, yeah. he, he might have steered you in the right direction, but still there's a way to do it, I guess. And, uh, mate, and I'm thinking the whole time, okay, a lot of what you said resonated with myself and my, you know, I went down the boat shed to row. They made me a coxswain because I, like you, I was 55 kilograms, you know, wet. <laughs> and, but really, you know, I, I went to play rugby. I was too small, but I love ball sports and everything else. So I ended up endurance sport was my thing. And I almost feel like for you, triathlon would have even been a better fit than cycling, but that's a whole nother story because I feel like triathlon, we don't have the extreme bursts like cycling does. And it is pure endurance. And, a guy at your weight and ability to have a high VO2 and be able to maintain it at, at, and hold that threshold. For me, that's what the sport of triathlon is all about. But I digress. I love the story and how it's led you to this place where you've gone from being a cycling coach to saying, hang on, to be a better cycling coach, I have to understand cognitive performance. Hang on, why don't I use some of these tools and, and bring them over to the cognitive world rather than just the physical world. I'd love to um, sort of tackle that a little bit more head on. When you say that you, you brought some of these tools from sports science, what, what, what are you talking specifically that you're able to bring over? That's a great question, which is how everyone responds in podcasts, don't they? Give some time to think. <laughs> no, but of course, and, that's um, the pause. That's the pause. <laughs> so, it's a good question. And um, uh, so the way I often look at this, now I'm an organizational psychologist and that's what my PhD is in technically, but mm. I still always look at this um, through the lens of sports science often. And there's a number of different models, which I mean, have been really informative for me. Um, that really find their home in sports science originally. And probably at its most basic, one of them is this idea of overload or the overload principle. And simply that principle asserts that for improvement to occur in any capacity, the human body has got to be stressed. And so we know what that looks like in a physiological capacity. If you want to get stronger, um, you have to lift more weight. If you want to get faster, you've got to stress your uh, aerobic uh, system so that your aerobic capacity can grow. And in a cognitive context, that could involve introducing increasingly challenging tasks to push mental boundaries and increase cognitive endurance, you know, that ability to sustain cognitive effort. And so you can think about that in the context of your career, you know, where early in a professional career, in in a knowledge work context, you know, you, there's probably things that you couldn't sustain that were incredibly challenging and demanding that now probably feel quite routine. So there's that overload principle. Another tool or framework is simply recovery theory as kind of a body of, of work or evidence. And we know that in sports, recovery periods are critical to allow the body to repair and to strengthen itself between our workouts. 
And similarly, in knowledge work, breaks and rest periods are critical for preventing cognitive burnout and also for supporting performance in terms of capabilities such as sustained focus uh, and even creativity, for example. There's also this idea in uh, in sport, which many of us are familiar with, and that actually is becoming uh, even more recognised. And that is the notion of rating of perceived exertion or RPE. Mm-hmm. And you know that was originally developed in sports science as a measure of intensity of exercise before we had access to things like heart rate monitors and power meters. And, and it's quite interesting to note that you know, people discarded that for a while. I remember there was this period of time, particularly when power meters really came to the fore mm. uh, and there was a lot of online coaches and you know, they were only interested in people's power output. And they would prescribe sessions um, and maybe they'd start to look at heart rate, heart rate, but they would never even ask the athlete how hard they felt the session was. But we're starting to recognize more and more how important our perception of effort is. And that applies equally well to knowledge work as well. It's a subjective assessment of how hard we feel that we're working. Uh, but in a cognitive context, we can use that to monitor and adjust the intensity of our cognitive work. And so you know, one of my questions in relation to that, uh, often when I'm working with knowledge workers, is how often have you taken a step back and reflected on how that cognitive effort has been distributed over the course of the average day? And how consistently has that effort been distributed in a way that uh, with your natural energy levels, mm. you know, those rhythms of peaks of valleys and rebounds that occur? Because we often rarely think about that. And you know, that's something I could talk about more in the context of this idea of always on work. Yes, yes. This idea that we're always connected. Um, there's another model that I find very informative and uh, they're kind of grouped together under this idea of psychobiological models of endurance. And, you know, there's a researcher called Samuel Makura, who's, who's quite well known in this field. But these models highlight the interplay of psychological and physiological factors in endurance performance. And so, again, this is another way that we're starting to recognize the importance of how we feel of our psychology in, uh, in relation to our physiology and how that predicts performance. Mm-hmm. So we can use those models in an athletic context to think about how things like motivation, self-belief, other psychological factors influence physical endurance, but actually they can also be used to think about how those factors influence cognitive performance too. You know, for example, we can see that in an, a physical endurance model, often the point at which we stop an activity, such as a time trial or we slow down, isn't necessarily when we reach this theoretical physiological limit. It's often the result that, uh, of our perceived effort becoming too high. So in a knowledge work context, imagine that you're working on a challenging, complex project and there's a deadline approaching really quickly. You've been at it for hours, you know, it's maybe late in the evening, you start to feel <laughs> mentally fatigued. Oh, mate, you're making We're me feel nervous this. in my... <laughs> all, you're painting a picture that makes me... Oh. <laughs> you can feel your heart rate going now. Yeah, okay, yeah, keep but, going. Uh, right. Sorry to interrupt. You maybe want to put a warning in front of this, uh, this podcast. We don't want to trigger anyone. But, no, no, it's but, great. You know, according to that psychobiological model, yeah, it's yeah. not only the cognitive demands of the tasks that, that are making you feel fatigued, it's also your brain's perception of the effort mm-hmm. that you're putting into that task. Mm. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's others as well. Uh, you know, there's a couple of others that we could talk about, but, um, but I think they're the main ones. And, you know, there's, there's also, you know, periodization, polarized training, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe we could dig into that, uh, uh, when we talk about cognitive performances and endurance activity a bit more specifically, but, but yeah, I'll, I'll pause and, uh, uh, interesting to hear your perspective on that, Greg. Yeah. The, the overload principle, recovery theory, RPE, all, all of those things 
resonate. And I think it's fantastic to just look at how you can take what we've examined in the physical world, in the physical space and go, hey, this is how it can affect you in the same world in the psychological space. And what I'd like to do is just talk about the, we can't always be on what, what your PhD is about, what you mentioned earlier, because I've had several conversations with our, with our mutual friend, Dr. Tommy Wood on this, on this show. And we, we've talked about how we are always on now compared to our ancestors that would go and do their job and then they'd be completely off. Um, and I saw a good illustration, I think the other day on, you know, Instagram reels or something. And it basically had this person going from a smaller screen to a slightly bigger screen, back to a smaller screen to a really big screen at the end of the evening that also had interruptions of a smaller screen and never letting the brain recover and, and always being on. So what I'd love to do is, is sort of, before we go into sort of the endurance activity, the cognitive um, performances and endurance activity, I'd love to just discuss how, well, first talk about the fact that we are always on. And then second, how can people take more control of their days, their weeks, their months in terms of finding ways to not be on and perform at their best when they are on? There's a lot to unpack in that mm. one. <laughs> yeah, no, but that, that's great. And, you know, I love this topic. So really happy to, to explore that with you. Uh, I mean, from, if we look at this from an academic point of view, there's still these increasing calls for more attention on this, what we describe as a phenomenon of always on work, mm. which is sometimes described as work taking over life. And more often than not, when we talk about that, we link it with this idea that we can't switch off from work. And often when we talk about not being able to switch off, we're describing this challenge experiencing a sense of mental distance from work. And it seems that knowledge workers, so people who think for a living, are quite vulnerable to this, uh, to these challenges. And there's several reasons for this, but one of the big reasons is that we're, we manage information for our job a lot of the time. And uh, we use information communication technology. It's just a fancy way of saying smartphones and laptops. Um, to do that, we use a lot of digital tools. And so you know, where work once could be isolated to the office because, you know, the computers, if we were using them, were big and sat on our desks. You know, we've got it in our pocket now. And, you know, Apple even wants to have it in front of our eyeballs permanently. As or or a chip in your brain. Isn't, is, hasn't Elon got the chip going into the brain? Isn't that the next one? Yeah, it's another <laughs> level. Uh, exactly. So so we struggle to switch off to get a sense of mental distance. Mm. The interesting thing is, is that, you know, this, this ability to work anywhere, anytime isn't all bad. And actually, uh, one of the positives about it is that it, it can accommodate many more working arrangements, lifestyles, personal needs. My wife and I have got two kids, mm -hmm. and often I'll make sure that I engage with them when they come home from uh, from school, mm -hmm. uh, if I can, uh, if I'm around. And that might mean taking a bit of time out of work. And sometimes I've got a few emails to do in the evening when they've gone to bed, mm -hmm. and I'm happy to do that. Yes. But overall, there's been this blurring of boundaries between work and non-work time increasing amounts of work outside of normal hours. And so this time that was once used to wind down and recover now means that many of us do what's called the new night shift. So we end up working longer, opportunities for recovery and getting this sense of mental distance are reduced, time for sleep is often shortened. And so it's those characteristics that I describe as, as always on work. So the interesting thing for me is you think about, you contrast that with what happens in endurance sport. Can you imagine an athlete who expected that they could absorb the same training load 
every day of the year, every week, every month. It just doesn't happen. You know, this, is, this principle of periodization has been around for decades and decades. This idea that we strategically plan training to achieve peak performance at the right times. We recognize we can't work on everything all the time. Even you know, within macro cycles, within micro cycles, there's this proactive planning of periods of intensity, periods of recovery so that we can adapt. And that isn't always possible in knowledge work. But I do think that one of the step changes that people can make in this context of always on work is to be a bit more proactive about recognizing these seasons or patterns in your work. So for example, if, you've, uh, can, if you notice or you recognize that there's going to be a very intense period coming up you know, in, finance, in the finance sector, that can be quite predictable, you know, whether it's uh, you can see that there's a deal starting to emerge um, or whether it's very cyclic you know, in accounting consulting practices, for example, around you know, the end of the tax year, for example, or, or a company, one of your clients' financial years, then I really encourage people to actually proactively plan a kind of taper leading up to that. You know, so you look at this intense period as uh, like a peak period of competition. And just like an endurance athlete, you love taper. It. So it. rather love than it. just going to that, yeah. always on, you know, just intensely working like normal, you intentionally back off, recognizing you need to increase your resources because you're going to be broken down mm-hmm. rather than going in already re- broken down and mm-hmm. then wondering why you pop out the other end, you know, on the edge of burnout. So, you know, that's, that's one example. Um, the other way to look at it is, you know, through this idea of polarized training intensity distribution. So, you know, in endurance sport, again, you know, there's this cr- uh, principle of polarized training, uh, which was you know, popularized by the Norwegians, where most of your training volume is at relatively easy, low intensity, and a small portion is at very hard, high intensity, with very little at medium intensity. And I think that concept can be translated into always on knowledge work, by structuring tasks in a way um, so that you recognize what are your, your high gear tasks that are very intense and very intense and you, you structure time to be able to do that, you take some real recovery in both your work and non-work time. And what you, the big change, again, the step change is that you try to reduce this moderate intensity work. So in the same way as an athlete following a polarized model, would probably get rid of quite a lot of sweet spot, you know, stuff at that moderate intensity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The cognitive athlete tries to get rid of the kind of the, the switching tasks where you're never really focused, but you're never really recovering. And I think we can all relate to that. You know, you're supposed to be kind of focused on an email, uh, just getting through, uh, you know, maybe it's, uh, um, uh, you've, you've got to kind of write a response that's going to be quite demanding. It's going to require your concentration. You want to put it off because you maybe you, you feel a bit nervous about what you've got to say, or you don't know whether you're going to be able to do it uh, and, and articulate the idea in the way you want to. So what do we do? We end up distracting ourselves. We procrastinate. We do a bit of other work. Maybe we look on social media. So rather than really just focusing and getting it done in a short burst, or really properly recovering, we end up in this cognitive middle gear where we're switching. Mm. So if we can get rid of that, if we can actually try to focus either in high gear or real recovery and minimize that middle gear, we can't can't get rid of it completely, then we're able to recover more effectively, to actually perform at a high level cognitively, and, uh, and as a result of that, make work more sustainable and address some of this always on working, which is often characterized by what I describe as this cognitive middle gear. Mm. So, so, you know, there's some, some practical ideas and, and, and in its essence, it goes back to that model that I described before, that recovery theory. It's about both a micro level, and by that I mean day to day and week to week, looking for those uh, being very intentional about periods of work and focus 
integrating micro breaks in your day, for example, you know, the evidence would indicate that you know, 10 minutes is about optimal for a micro break. That micro break would have several characteristics. Ideally, there's a change of posture, you'd get up. There's an active component, you move around. There's a social component, you connect with people about something non-work related. There's a relaxing component, there's a decrease in cognitive and physical load. And there's also a natural component. There's this great uh, theory called attention restoration theory that describes the uniquely restorative benefits of seeing natural objects, clouds in the sky, leaves on a tree. And so on a micro level, having these micro breaks in the day with those characteristics, relaxing, active, social, natural, week to week, making sure you get a day off if you can. So there's this uh, intentional recovery period. And then in the context of periodization, tapers, also recovery periods after intense periods, and getting a bit more proactive about recognizing that we can't always be on. And if we want to get the best out of ourselves with, with and have the greatest impact, we need to start taking this more overarching view, this more intentional proactive view about how we distribute effort and recovery. So they would be my kind of top top tips for tackling always on work through the lens of cognitive performance uh, as an endurance activity. It's music to my ears, mate. I, um, you know, working with, at any question and, and, and setting up the team culture and how we work. Each individual has to take ownership of who they are, right? And, and to your point, be present in each moment that they're going to be in. And I'd often share with my team the way I would set up my day, you know, and you know, for me, I'm an, an I'm an early bird. That's the one that comes comfortable to me. So I like to wake up at that 4 a.m. And then I like to use that 4 a.m. to 5 a.m. to set up the day. And you talked about emails and, and, and procrastinating. In that hour, I get so much done and I'm so on because my brain is just, that's when I'm at its peak. You know, my brain is just bang. And so I can go for an hour, hour and a half in that morning and feel like I've done five hours of work. It really is one of those boom, boom, boom. And then I go do my workout and then I have breakfast with the kids and get them to school and all that kind of stuff. And then I do my, I guess you'd almost call it your, what you were saying, your middle, your middle ground between that sort of nine and midday. But then I said to the team, I'll be around in the afternoon, sort of that one till three, but I'm not great. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not great. And I did read something on your website or somewhere where you said, you know, there's a rebound phase and I would have that nice little rebound sort of, you know, that three to four in the afternoon. But for me, it's about taking ownership of your time, right? Taking absolute control and ownership. Um, and to quote, you know, the Hinsa model where it's, you know, know who you are and understanding when you are going to be on on point is really critical. What I haven't done, and, and I love when you said this, I've always said to the team, look, we're you know, a bit like an athlete, you know, this is a push phase. We're going to have everybody blinders on and this is a push and, you know, let's hang in there and we'll have a recovery phase at the end of it. And I think you need to be clear on the problem with a startup is knowing when is that recovery phase coming because it, it keeps, you keep moving yeah. the goalposts, right? And it's like, oh, but what we haven't done a good job of is is having a small taper before you say, let's do this push phase. And and I think people go into these push phases a little bit, I've already been going, you know, since January and, and now you're saying we've got to push. And it's like, well, no, 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 no. You know, and, and I know even in our team, finally we've got one of our guys to say, look, you need a week off, just go, don't do anything. You need to have a break before this next push phase before we get to September or whatever. I love the the concepts that you're bringing, because I can totally understand, and I think most listeners can, that look, we all understand how to put a training program together for an endurance athlete. Well, you understand the basic concepts anyway. But then just taking that model, that framework, 
and putting it into our work and the rest of our life and taking ownership of that. I just think that's so cool, mate. I really do. It's fantastic. Thanks. It's really good to hear it resonates. Yeah, yeah. So you, you talk about um, cognitive performance as an endurance activity. When I first read that, I kind of was like, hang on, what is he, what is he kind of saying? You've just gone through that really by saying we can't always be on. But when you came up with this cognitive performance as an endurance activity, do you have people coming back to you saying, hang on, I'm not an endurance athlete, I'm not a performer. How, how do you sell this? Well, sell it is not the right way, but how do you present this yeah, what you mean. to the mm. organizations of the world to have them take it seriously? And how do you show the benefits and the numbers and how they can actually perform better as individuals and an organization? Yeah, so I mean, exploring that question or that topic cognitive performance as an endurance activity came from me having the question, what can we learn from the world's top endurance athletes to enhance well-being and performance in the workplace? And, you know, as I mentioned, I started to try to understand the workplace by applying these models from sports science. And I was actually like, actually, there's a lot to learn here because you know, for, for example, in organizational psychology, you know, there's some dominant models, this idea of the conservation of resources model, effort recovery model. But actually, you know, we've been thinking about effort and recovery and resources, uh, physiological resources in sports science for a long time too. And there's a lot to learn there. And I think when I'm describing this, there's several characteristics that make knowledge work analogous to a cognitive endurance activity. Um, and these are characteristics which are shared, in my view, between physical endurance and cognitive endurance. And I'd describe, I can probably describe six of them. And so one of them is this idea of sustained effort over time. So you know, just like triathlon, requires sustained physical effort over an extended period, knowledge work demands continuous cognitive effort. But instead of pumping out the watts or you know, maintaining your pace in the run or the swim, it's about solving complex problems, analyzing data, writing reports, etc. It requires persistent mental activity. The second characteristic relates to some of the things we talked about uh, earlier, and that is the need for pacing. So, you know, again, in cycling or endurance sport, maintaining an optimal pace is crucial to make sure that we don't exhaust ourselves too quickly. And similarly in knowledge work, we've got to understand how to pace ourselves, both micro and macro, knowing when to push hard, when to back off. And that's essential for maintaining cognitive endurance through the workday, but also from week to week, month to month, year to year. The third one related to that is the importance of recovery. So endurance athletes need recovery so that our bodies can heal, energy resources can be replenished. Similarly, knowledge workers need cognitive recovery time. And again, that can be short breaks through the workday or longer periods of downtime after intensive projects. But without recovery, the bottom line is uh, fatigue sets in, we get decreased productivity, increased error rates. You know, just to kind of, there's a there's a few more, that's kind of the halfway point of my six, but um, to, to answer your question around how do you measure this, one of the ways you can look at this is actually with cognitive performance tests. And so it's something that I did in my PhD research I've done in uh, commercial work as well, where we uh, do a sample period uh, where we'll actually get people to measure their cognitive performance using a validated application a few times a day and then link that in with other measures. So things like their sleep data, for example, their perception of stress, things like heart rate variability. And what you can see consistently is that it went, for example, when people don't sleep enough, their, their sleep debt increases, their cognitive performance significantly drops. And in particular, we start to see increasing error rates. You know, there was some great research, not done by me, um, uh, but it's been uh, uh, well quoted uh, by a researcher uh, by called Van Dongen, led by his group, 
And it described how after sleeping for six hours per night for two weeks, cognitive performance in terms of error rate is as bad as going an entire night without sleep. But the challenge is people don't notice it. Uh, people's perception of sleepiness doesn't really increase um, at linearly or at the same rate as they get worse in terms of the errors that they make. And so actually being able to measure some of these factors and provide individual insights, also organisational insights, which I've done with some very large organisations, helps people to start to understand that we need to sustain effort over a long time, but that's got to be paced. And perhaps most importantly, people need to recover. And you know, there's a there's a phrase in endurance sports sometimes that, that you might have heard, and I think it can be taken out of context or overdone, but sometimes people talk about this idea that we can't overtrain, but we can under-recover. And actually, if you for me, that means if you prioritize adequate recovery, then you know the effort becomes self-governing, uh, the amount of load uh, which you actually are able to to fit in. Um, it kind of almost takes care of itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know, if you look, for example, at the difference between a professional and an amateur road cyclist, which is the sport I'm more familiar with, you know, one of the biggest differences in my view between you know a, a professional cyclist and a very, very top elite amateur cyclist is that the professionals can dedicate themselves completely not just to their training, but also their recovery. As a consequence, they can tolerate more load, they can get better adaptations, and then obviously all the benefits. There's obviously other factors in there as well, but but often the you know one of the the kind of the unlocks for knowledge workers, you know, the step changes, is when they recognise the value of recovery mm-hmm. and and how that can actually help them to realise greater levels of sustained performance. So so there's those three, there's sustained effort over time, need for pacing, importance of recovery, which I use to compare physical and cognitive endurance. There's also psychological factors because both cycling and knowledge work or whatever endurance sport you're looking at all require a high level of what you, you could describe as mental fortitude. Mm-hmm. You know, characteristics like motivation, focus, the ability to cope with discomfort and keep going. And knowledge workers still need those characteristics. You, know, you talked about your experience in startups, Greg, and mm. you know uh, I, I was involved in. A, I've been involved in a few startups. I worked for one uh, uh, until until last April, and there is suffering associated with that. Uh, you know, I think it's one of my challenges sometimes with the the kind of the conversations around workplace well being, is that uh, maybe there's this idea that we can kind of work can be this kind of utopian world where you know we never really have to push ourselves that hard. And you know, maybe for some people that, that's what they want and, and maybe they can find that and that's fine. But but actually, if we have this foundation of endurance uh, and this ability to sustain effort uh, in a way um, that's, that's healthy, there's actually a lot of reward, intrinsic reward associated with pushing yourself you know, as part of a team to achieve something great. Mm, and, mm. Uh, and we know what that's like in a sporting context, you know, when you're, you're in a triathlon or, you know, in my context, I was in a time trial and you're right on that physiological limit and it's uncomfortable, but when you're well-trained, when you're well-rested, oh, the best. there's almost a pleasure yes. in finding that limit. Yes. And, and actually I've experienced that in a workplace context as well. Mm-hmm. You know, what's worse, uh, what's terrible is, you know, where you turn up to the triathlon already fatigued and maybe a bit sick or the time trial (laughs) under kind of a bad night of sleep and poor nutrition and then it's not fun and work can be like that too um so psychological factors the final two impact of nutrition and hydration sounds pretty obvious endurance athletes need proper nutrition and hydration to fuel their physical activity knowledge workers need to nourish their brains and uh and so you know that means balanced nutrition uh, it means uh, adequate hydration 
And actually for people in very demanding global roles, that can be incredibly difficult. Uh, when it's back-to-back meetings, when it's huge amounts of dehydrating international travel, doesn't matter if you're turning left at the front of the plane, you know, you can be there trying to catch some sleep, hammering through some work on your laptop. You know, maybe they don't bring as much water as you'd like them to. Uh, and uh, before you know it, you're super dehydrated and that starts to impact cognitive function. You know, over time, you're not getting the micronutrients you need. Uh, you still need that, that nutrition and hydration. And finally, there's this idea of the role of training. And you know, this is perhaps a little less well-developed in some respects in this idea of knowledge work as a cognitive endurance activity. But we know that endurance athletes improve their performance through regular and structured training. And similarly, I think that knowledge workers can improve their cognitive endurance through practices and regular exercises that boost brain health and cognitive performance and that ability to sustain effort. You know, some of that um, is about, uh, uh, you know, just happens as your career grows and develops. Uh, some of it can happen through training yourself to focus for longer periods in developing those executive functions. But again, that requires all those other factors to be in place to be able to adapt uh, to actually absorb that increasing load so that you can sustain effort for longer periods. So yeah, so they're, they're my six. Sustained effort over time, need for pacing, importance of recovery, psychological factors, impact of nutrition and hydration, and the role of training would, would be how I'd link together these ideas of sporting endurance and cognitive endurance in the context of knowledge work. Have you looked into how physical exercise can in, you know, affect your cognitive performance and vice versa? If you, how you can use the cognitive exercises and how that can affect physical performance. I, I've chatted about that with, with Dr. Tommy Wood a little bit. Is there much science coming out that, that, look, if you're physically fit, strong, working out each day, moving, the implications of doing that and how well that can affect your cognitive performance? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's some really interesting evidence that links physical activity and exercise with cognitive performance. Uh, and actually, there's some evidence that indicates that different types of exercise have different uh, different impacts on mm. uh, different aspects of cognitive performance. So, for example, it seems that continuous aerobic exercise, about 85% of your maximum heart rate for just under an hour, really seems to benefit executive functions. So you know, cognitive control, things like sustained attention, for example. Also, it seems that um, uh, shorter sessions, maybe at slightly lighter intensity, kind of 64 to 95, uh, for maybe half an hour, seems to improve memory, specifically uh, recall our ability to actually drag out information that we need uh, need to use. We know as well that um, exercise, pretty much any exercise improves positive mood, generally speaking, and in turn, positive mood can have a really positive impact on cognitive performance. Um, so that's another factor. But there is this kind of open question um, about the relationship between physical activity and, and cognitive function. And the question is, uh, does physical activity improve cognitive function? Or are people with better cognitive function more likely to be physically active? Because <laughs> yes. we know there's this, there's this yes. bi-directional yeah. relationship between the two. And you'll often find this kind of naysayers in the kind of academic work. It would be like, no, you know, really, it's just that people with better cognitive function are more likely to be physically active. And, um, and one of the reasons for this is that, you know, the, the quality of evidence sometimes isn't that strong. And some of the analyses don't go beyond what is possible with cross-sectional research. So it's difficult to establish causality. And, you know, it's a big bugbear of mine. And I have to be careful because I fall into the trap myself. But so often in scientific research, 
we end up describing it and infer causality. So mm-hmm. this causes this mm-hmm. rather than recognize that it's actually just a correlation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a really interesting study published recently. And we know that physical activity, particularly moderate to vigorous physical activity, so that's where you kind of start to get out of breath, but you can still speak, seems to improve brain function. And there's a lot of reasons why that could be. And I think you talked about this with Tommy in detail, so I won't kind of overdo it. But essentially, it seems that it can increase our brain's adaptability, promote growth of new brain cells, improve connections between them, probably related to BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, the act of engaging physical activity requires us to use functions, uh, executive functions like planning, reasoning, which might have a positive effect. However, there's also mechanisms which say why cognitive abilities influence our capacity to engage in physical activity. And so it can create this, this reinforcing loop. Now, the problem with a lot of the studies is there's these confounders in the mix. So social factors, behavioral factors, genetic factors that all influence the results. And a lot of the research, as I said, is varying quality, small samples. But there was this study that was done um, where they used this technique. And uh, um, I wrote it down, actually, um, just to be completely transparent, uh, because people think, wow, how did James remember that? I didn't remember it. Um, It's called latent heritable confounder Mendelian randomization. (laughs) Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, LHC-MR. I just had no chance of locking that one away. No. Um, but anyway, this technique is a statistical technique that can help you identify the strength and direction of causality in a relationship specifically. And so they did this study and the findings were great. Uh, you know, for me, who's bias, it, it, it supported my bias because they found that moderate to vigorous physical activity was causally associated with significant improvements in cognitive function. And in contrast, using that method, they found no causal impact of cognitive function on physical activity. So uh, the other way around. And so basically the results suggest that the primary mode of action is for physical activity to improve cognitive function rather than the inverse. Yes. We're not saying that that doesn't happen, but the primary mode of action is physical activity to improve cognitive function. And basically it's just a really strong argument to show that engaging in moderate moderate to vigorous physical activity supports and could enhance cognitive function and there's tons of other evidence around you know, brain health and you know tommy's really the expert in this he's got so much insight but that's kind of some of the evidence more recent evidence that i'm uh, i've been reading and yeah. you know, i think really supports that that positive relationship it's brilliant mate and, and honestly you know to simplify and probably dumb, dumb it down a fair bit from my end you know i'm the like I said, I, I'm that 4am crowd, you know, get my work done and then head to the gym and I'm at the gym at 5.15 in the morning and, you know, work out till 6.15. Then I do my sauna and ice bath and everything else to start the day. And and I look around the the gym in those early hours, you know, and I see tremendous discipline, dedication, focus for any of those people that are there to be up and going and doing it consistently day in, day out. I know the same bunch of guys for the last, you know, 12 months, they just keep turning up. And immediately I think any of these people, when I say guys, I do mean men and women, but I, um, any of these people that are there turning up, they're already showing me a trait that I think they would work well in my team because I know they're Mm. doing something uncomfortable and they're doing it daily, no matter what, and they've prioritized it. And so this there's this cognitive effect, if you like, that's, 
yes, they're now doing the physical activity, but they had to start somewhere to your point earlier. You know, their cognitive performance is good enough to have them disciplined and dedicated and focused to turn up every single day to do the physical, which then impacts their cognitive performance for the workday. So it's almost this going around in circles, um, you know, and that's where I imagine the science is trying to say, well, hang on, the people that are working out consistently and performing every day, they were great at cognitive performance already. They were dedicated, disciplined and focused. It's a very interesting area. The way I would look at how I would want to employ people is anybody that's getting up and doing that and owning their life and taking control of themselves, I think is is huge. But I want to go back. Definitely. I want to go back to have a few call to actions. You know, we've talked a lot about the individual like I just mentioned, taking ownership and being present and everything that you've mentioned. What can companies do to set things up for their employees? And if you have any examples of either mistakes companies have made or, or what they could, how it's worked, uh, that'd be great. Just have a few, if there's some call to actions that you could say, hey, you should implement this today. <laughs> I, mean, I, I work quite a lot with companies on uh, workplace wellbeing strategy. Mm-hmm. And so going in, trying to measure what's going well, what's not, help them to put together a strategy, evaluate the efficacy of that strategy using a feedback loop so they can continue to adapt and improve it. But one of my strongly held beliefs is that wellbeing strategy needs to be integrated more closely with business strategy. And by that, I mean, it's not enough to just say, oh, you know, we're going to encourage people to do regular physical activity and we're going to have a KPI around people's daily step count to take uh, take account of that. And so we've got that part of our wellbeing strategy and then we've got a business strategy over here. And our business strategy says we need a wellbeing strategy and we've got one so we can tick that box. <laughs> By integration, what I mean is when you're making strategic decisions at a business level, are you thinking about how that is going to impact well-being, but also how impacting well-being can help you achieve your business strategy? And so, you know, for example, if physical health and those activity targets are part of your well-being strategy, be thinking about the fact that actually finding ways to encourage that physical activity to facilitate it can actually help you to achieve your business performance goals and and execute on your business strategy. So, looking at that integration and that bi-directional relationship. You know, some of that can be around you know, on-site gym facilities, fitness subsidies, walking meetings is a great one, uh, even flexible working hours that allow people to exercise, you know, as a, uh, to, to diet, focus in on that physical health uh, kind of idea. But I think that you know, the, I've got some other ideas as well. I'm happy to share them in terms of what people can do practically in terms of the workplace. But the other strongly held belief that I have is that um, so, much, so many wellbeing interventions that I see are kind of akin to pouring water onto a plant that is uh, in uh, a pot that's full of stones and wondering why the thing isn't thriving and growing. And so you can do as many well-being interventions as you like, meditation rooms and apps and whatever. But if you're not addressing the soil, and by that I mean the culture, the leadership, the working environment, the, the kind of expectations that are set, the training that is given, making sure that jobs uh, and roles and people's responsibilities are clearly articulated, you know, the fundamentals are in place, then you can do all the well-being interventions that you like, it won't make a difference. So you've got to build that that good foundation, uh, you know, get the basics right um, and uh, addressing some of these challenges that people have in terms of lack of role, role clarity, for example, which we know is a significant source of stress. And if someone turns up at work every day and isn't really clear about what they're doing and how they're going to be measured and doesn't know how to win, essentially, 
then um, you know, just saying, well, you're stressed. Well, it's, uh, we've got a webinar to help you to uh, to deal with stress. It's not going to cut it. You've got to go back to basics and help that person to understand what they're there for, and uh, so that they can can have that sense of intention. You know, we know, for example, that one of the biggest predictors of whether people adapt healthily to stress um, is the balance between the demands that people experience and their experience and their perception of control. And so there's some great studies. There was a paper that um, uh, I've quoted several times, and uh, the title was, This Job is Literally Killing Me. And it described this balance between demands and control and how that predicted health outcomes and actually even uh, some really serious health outcomes. Um, and basically, if you have sufficient experience of control, you perceive that you're able to influence what's going on in your environment, you can tolerate really high demands and even get stronger and improve your health in response to those increasing demands. However, the demands could be 50% of someone else's. And if you don't have that experience of control, your ab the ability to influence what's going on, that's associated with some really negative health outcomes like worsening health. So you've got to give people that sense of control. Now, this kind of relates to the second point I say that employers can, can tackle, which is around mental health. So again, providing those foundations are in place, you know, services um, uh, around uh, things like mental health support, confidential counselling, stress management training, mindfulness programmes, but also create a culture that promotes open dialogue about mental health issues. Because you can do everything right as an employer. The reality is life is tough. It's not just about what's going on in the workplace. Many of us struggle sometimes with mental health. So make sure that people feel open and able to share what's going on. And a lot of that is about leaders being open about their challenges and saying that it's okay to share that and make sure you direct people uh, and, and don't just direct them. Sometimes people need their hands holding to find those resources. There's some really worrying statistics about um, the very low uptake of, uh, of well-being interventions and provision. And often you know, people might know about it, but they don't access it, or sometimes they don't even know it's available. So make sure people know it's there. Nutrition is obviously a key one. Considering healthy meal options and snacks in the workplace, you can do educational workshops, that kind of thing, basically empowering employees to make healthier food choices. Also, make sure those food choices are available. Again, it's no good having a workshop saying, you know, we're going to try and uh, reduce, you should reduce your processed carbohydrate, but, you know, all is available is like, you know, white bread and, and crisps, you know, in the, in the cafeteria. Yeah. Work-life integration. So encouraging employees to try to maintain a healthy balance between their personal and professional lives. That could be about flexible working hours again, maybe the option of remote working. But fundamentally, I think it's about policies and, and people actually modeling again as a leader that it's okay to take time off, that it's okay to switch off. Mm -hmm. So if you're a leader who likes to do your emails at 4am, that's great. Uh, you know, as you described, Greg, maybe consider with your team um, time delaying when that is sent. Um, so uh, it goes a few hours later so that you're not subconsciously sending this signal to your team that, you know, uh, being a higher performer in this organization means you send your emails at 4.30. That might not be the case. But, but it can be sometimes subconsciously. So just thinking about what we're modeling, obviously professional development, sometimes we don't think about that in terms of well-being. but actually we know that actually learning new things, feeling like we're growing, developing is fundamental to our well-being. So we want to provide those opportunities for skill development, growth, career progression. Community and social connections are absolutely key. There was some interesting research which suggests that the protective effect of good social relationships is actually equivalent to that, to being physically active. There was another crazy statistic that said that loneliness, the effect of loneliness on our health is equivalent to smoking 12 cigarettes a day. 
And actually, one of the, the challenges with remote working and when you speak particularly to younger employees, and there's some data to support this, is that people are quite fearful about becoming increasingly socially isolated. So I think it's critical that as, as leaders, you know, as people in the workplace, we're thinking about how we can foster that sense of community and social connections. Obviously, we want people to have lives outside of work. Um, I'm pretty resistant to this idea that, you know, we're a family here at work. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if work is a family, pretty toxic, considering no, that you, know, like you that don't word perform, they'll kick you out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but still, we can have good social connections at work. Um, very practically, make sure the workplace is ergonomic. Uh, uh, musculoskeletal disorders are a leading cause of of absence and lost productivity as well as pain and so just making sure that you've got ergonomic furniture workstations and reducing the risk of physical strain and discomfort but also considering environmental factors we've got this growing awareness of the impact of things like noise on stress air quality on cognitive performance and light on alertness and our circadian rhythm which can also impact well-being health and metabolic health specifically even so, you know, a lot of workplaces are too dark, really worth thinking about that and in terms of both office environments and also home office environments. Rest and recovery, the importance of breaks during the day, as well as longer vacations, difficult, I know, in the US sometimes. Recognising people and rewarding them for the valued work that they do. Um, you know, and that, that's about fair compensation, essentially, a lot of the time. Again, you know, I love it when these organizations are talking about their well-being strategy and it's like, you know, we've got headspace for everybody. Uh, but actually, you do some kind of survey and people just feel they're massively underpaid and they're struggling to keep up with the cost of living. And, you know, I recognize that it's not always possible to increase people's compensation uh, in line with inflation. You know, it seems like an impossible task in many parts of the world at the moment. But even if you can't, having an open conversation with your employees and recognizing that, um, uh, you know, if you can't increase compensation for them, explain this is why. Mm-hmm. It's not because you don't care about them. You don't think they're doing a good job. Uh, and finally, healthcare. You know, again, you know, it's all well and good talking about kind of yoga and, and whatever. But if you've got people who've got you know, chronic clinical back conditions, not going to help necessarily. So, you know, could healthcare services, which again, you know, obviously that is different in terms of regions if you're in the US relative to, to Western Europe, for example. Um, but um, but yeah, they'd be, they'd be my 10 uh, wow. as an employer. I'd be looking at physical health, mental health, nutrition, work-life integration, professional development, social connections, an ergonomic workplace, rest recovery, reward and recognition and, and healthcare. And if you could tick those 10 boxes and it was truly integrated, again, well-being strategy, fully integrated in a business strategy, you'd be world-class. And I think that you'd find that it would significantly improve your business performance too. Brilliant, mate. That, that, those 10 and that last 10 minutes is absolutely outstanding for anybody that's in a leadership role for sure. And even if you're not, if you're in a company and you can present it to your organization, I think it's absolutely outstanding. Um, you touched on one thing earlier that resonated with me, which is you know having real clarity of your role and responsibility. I think quite often what creates so much stress is people just, are unsure, you know, yeah, yeah, you can go do what you want. Yeah. Help the company grow this way. And they're like, well, what does that mean? What do you, what? I think there's often a vagueness and that often makes people feel a little bit uncomfortable. So I think there's, there was a lot to unpack in what you just said, but that one kind of stuck with me going, yeah, I think we allowing employees to feel like they have control over what their roles and responsibilities are and they can work with leadership to, you know, to take ownership. So very cool, mate. I want to finish up with, uh, with four big questions, if, if that's okay with you. And the first one is, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give your 16-year-old self? 
<laughs> oh, that's a good question. You know, I was thinking about this and I was like, you prompted me this question before and I was, should I say something kind of philosophical about, I wouldn't <laughs> want to give any advice because it might change the timeline. And, you know, uh, but I was like, you know, I don't know. Um, but the thing that immediately occurred to me, if I'm honest, is pretty basic. It was don't hold on to motorbikes to get yourself back to the Peloton if you get a puncture because you'll have the scars to remind you 20 years no later. No way. Is that what happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, uh, oh, uh, that was brutal. another story. But, um, you know, uh, just doing stupid there's a few stupid things where people are like, oh, everything's a lesson, you know, and, uh, and all that. And I didn't need to learn that lesson. <laughs> I was just stupid. So, you know, and I think like, I don't know, I guess like I, you could maybe sum it up as... The, the reason you did that, it's a remember when story. There's a reason for everything. You don't have a remember when stories if you don't do some stupid stuff along the way. Totally. <laughs> I, mean, I guess the principle there that I'd maybe tell my 16-year-old self is, you know, just because you could doesn't mean you should. And, uh, <laughs> Wise um, words. Yeah, Wise a, words. I think everyone listening, um, drop that one down. I agree. <laughs> All right, next one. If you could have dinner with three people, non-family, living or dead, who would they be? Yeah, this is another tough one. But I was thinking about this and I was like, you know, I'd want someone who I could have a really good conversation with about, uh, you know, where the fu- about the future. But I'd also want someone who could help me to get a better understanding of the past and maybe a perspective on that. And then we need someone who could uh, help us to talk about some issues that really matter and entertain us at the same time. And the list that I came up with was, uh, um, the first one was Leonardo da Vinci. Can you imagine having dinner with that guy? You know, he was a polymath. He could do everything, paint, sculpture, science, engineering, super curious, creative. I would just love to speak with him. Can you imagine the things he could talk about, that intersection of art and human potential? There's a... And more, a modern one, um, a kind of a, a, a contemporary guy. You might have heard of him. He's a guy called Kevin Kelly. He's a futurist. He co-founded Wired magazine. Basically, he's dedicated his life to understanding technology's impact on society and the future of humanity. And I'd love to just talk to him about the transformative power of technology. I think he's got some great, quite balanced views on the potential of AI, for example, um, and maybe some of the risks as well. And I just think he'd be a great fit. He'd be entertaining. He'd be thought-provoking. And finally, you know, who, who would challenge us to, to think about some of the big issues around, uh, in the world? Um, you know, who would maybe challenge us to think differently? Um, because, uh, you know, uh, Leonardo and Kev and, and me, you know, we're, we're white guys and prettily, we're getting pretty kind of stale and, and pale. And, uh, you know, there's a, we end up in these echo chambers. And I was like, you know, who, who could challenge us to think differently, but also bring something, bring something beautiful, bring something special? And I came up with Nina Simone. You know, she's an iconic singer, songwriter, a civil rights activist. Um, and she just had this, in my view, you know, an unparalleled ability to convey emotion through her music. She's someone who would take us out of our heads and actually help us to connect with our hearts. And that's something I find really, really difficult. And I just think, can you imagine having a conversation with her? Uh, you know, I think she was a great storyteller. Mm-hmm. I think we could talk about, you could hear her experience. We could talk about social, political issues. And if we were lucky enough, maybe she would sing us a song and we'd get that kind of blend of jazz and blues and soul and those powerful lyrics. And, uh, you know, that would just be the end uh, to, a, to a great evening, I think, uh, um, if, uh, if we could have those three round, wow. for, round for dinner. Mate, you've really thought about it. That was fantastic. Um, it's one of my favorite questions to ask, you know, even if you're at a dinner party or whatever, you know, who would you want to have dinner with, you know? And people go all over the place. But uh, your three are three, I don't believe I've had on the show. I've asked that question probably over 100 times to 100 different guests. 
and I think you're the most unique I've had. So congrats on that. There's an award for that, I'm sure. Thanks. <laughs> All right, next one. Where do you see yourself in five years? Yeah. Are you going to give me a job at the end of this, Greg? You want a job. <laughs> you want a job, mate. I'm looking, I'm looking at building a new company here. On, so uh, there's potential, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Always open to discussions. Didn't you, didn't you realize this podcast is all about job interviews? Everybody I talk to. Brilliant. I love it. It's, I mean, I think, you know, the, um, we'll have to wait and see, but it would be about like, me continue, being able to continue to express like my core values and what I think are my greatest strengths. And mm. so for me, my number one strength in my view uh, is my curiosity. And it would be about continuing to explore that curiosity. I'd be having regular opportunities to communicate with the broad audience. And fundamentally, I'd be continuing to equip people to experience more of their potential in their life and their work. And if I could tick those three boxes, um, I think I would feel that I was I was on the right track in five years' time. And you know that's probably as, as clear as I can be uh, in the time that we've got. No, I, I love it. I love it. All right, well, last, last one. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Well, you know the quote I gave you earlier, just because you could do it doesn't mean you should do it. That was that was a piece of advice I received and recycled and sadly didn't apply it to my 16-year-old self. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with that one. I love it. I love it, mate. Hey, I know I know I've kept you a long time, but I love to finish. People the listeners and I do too love some rapid fire questions. You up for it? Let's see what fast twitch for Yeah, absolutely. Fast twitch you got left. All right. Are you an early bird or night owl? Early bird. Favourite meal of the day, breakfast, lunch, or dinner? Breakfast. Favourite sport besides cycling? Skiing. What book are you reading now or recently? <laughs> um, I'm just, I'm so stuck in academic articles. <laughs> I've read, read a paper book for ages. <laughs> I read a really interesting book a while ago called The Power of Geography, which is pretty cool. Um, it's by a guy called Tim Marshall. And, um, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it was a bestseller and, um, uh, you know, I think, um, I'd, I'd recommend that it's a really interesting view on you know, the regions uh, that set to shape global politics. And I'm quite interested in geopolitics. So interesting. Yeah, well. as long as it's on audible, I'll grab it. I don't actually physically read. I, I listen. <laughs> so I don't know if you call it reading, but I'll go check it out. All right. What is your favorite movie of all time? Oh, good question. Yeah. I probably haven't got a single one, but I love James Bond movies. I love, I love James Bond movies. I think, yeah, I'm a bit, I'm a big fan of those. So it'd be one of the classics with Sean Connery, definitely. Being that you're in the tech space, what's your favourite piece of technology you own? Um, you know what? I know how this is so boring, but it's my MacBook Pro it's because cool, it? it facilitates so much of my productivity and mm. creativity. It just works. It's fast. It's got a super long battery life. It's brilliant. All right. Next one, big one. Is cereal a soup? <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> I like to throw in a little one. <laughs> All right, here's one. Um, if you were arrested with no explanation, what would your friends and family assume you had done? <laughs> At first, they'd probably say not again. <laughs> um, but, uh... Oh, that's a great response. You don't even have to give me more than that. That was excellent. Oh. <laughs> All right. Would you rather always be 10 minutes late or always be 20 minutes early? 20 minutes early, every All right. time. All right. And best decade of music? 80s. Nice. All right. Good man. All right, buddy. Well, what's next for you? What's going on for you? You've got to finish your PhD. Um, you got any other big uh, presentations or anybody else? 
you're working with? Yeah, the main th- the main thing is getting that PhD done, and um, uh, you know I'm kind of coming to the finish line for that, which is just going to free a huge amount of time and, and resource. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, I'm also working on uh, uh, another project in the background that is going to make it a lot easier for people to to get the insights they need to stay on top of what's going on in, in workplace wellbeing mm-hmm. and uh, and some related uh, kind of tools related to that. So um, it's interesting to see how that's going to develop. But yeah, right now it's going to be get the PhD done, get that doctorate in front of my name and, uh, you know, that research published and and then we'll, we'll see what's next. Right. Well, awesome. It's been a real pleasure to have you on this show and, and, and massive congrats to all you've done um, and just sharing your journey, honestly. And, and uh, I, I think your first 10 to 15 minutes are just taking us through how you became so passionate about human performance. It's a very cool story. I loved this chat um, and I feel so fortunate that you you know spent a good hour 15 of your day, your afternoon. I know you've got two kids, you've got a PhD to finish and everything else, but you were prepared to sit with me. And I, I really appreciate you, mate. So um, thanks for coming on. Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity. It's been great to speak with you, Greg. Yeah, perfect. For everybody else, you can find all the show notes and timestamps and everything else at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. Thanks a lot for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.